Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is David Shearman, pastor, teacher, and leader of leaders. David Shearman, welcome to Facing the Canon. Nice to see you, John. And you too. We've actually been friends, I was thinking about this this morning, for 42 years. Because I remember I, I trained at St John's College, Nottingham. You did, spent and you were at a St. year and, uh, in Northern Ireland. Then I joined St Nick's, yeah. and that's when we first met. But we want to hear about you, David. Where were you born? Oh, I was born in All Church Hospital in Romford. And where did you grow up? I grew up for the first two years in Essex, and then my father pioneered a, a church in Hertfordshire, in a little village. And then we went to Willington in County Durham for another two or three years where he took over a broken church and then at the age of about seven I moved to Belfast in Northern Ireland and lived there until I was 11 and then we came to Manchester where I spent my teenage years and met my wife and married her. Ah and you've been married how long? 57 years next month. Congratulations. You grew up in a Christian home. Yes. Have you always known the Lord? It depends what we mean by know the Lord. I've known about the Lord, definitely. Yes. And I knew when I was very young, I mean, eight, nine, ten, which people say you can't know, but I did know that I was a sinner. Um, and not in any condemnatory way, but I knew I didn't have the presence of Christ as my saviour. And I had a Sunday school teacher, a lady called Mrs. Martin in Belfast, who regularly asked me whether I was ready to accept Jesus. And then one Sunday afternoon in September, I knelt down when all the rest of the Sunday school was running about at the end of the time and confessed Jesus as my Saviour and Lord. And I know, as sure as I'm sitting here, that I was born again. I went and sat in the back of my father's big old Humber car. He had an old army car, big leather seat, and I jumped up and down on this back seat because I knew I was forgiven and I've never, ever forgotten it. And then you had the privilege of taking over the pastorate of a church from your father. I did. So yes. that must have been quite something. How, how long had your father pastored the church in Nottingham? So he went there in six, the end of 64, and this would have been about 76, 77, something like that. Um, and he was in his early 60s and he felt he wanted to go itinerant, preaching more. He was a great Bible teacher went round Australia in a, in, a, in a little car without air conditioning, all the way around. Uh, I mean, through the middle and massive heat and preaching in lots of little churches and encouraging people. Uh, so he went to do some of that. And it was, a, it was a challenge at one level. It was an honor to follow him. Uh, he, he was a bit of a, more of a legalistic Pentecostal. And I, I wasn't so keen on some of that. And uh, it took a bit of time to change some of those principles, the old hymn sandwiches, you know, and then the charismatic renewal started to come in the wider churches and we were one of the Pentecostal churches that absorbed some of that quickly and had some outstanding meetings where the presence of God would come. So it, it was an interesting time. I said at one moment, we were in a little leaders meeting and my father had been traveling a lot and, and a, another older man who's now di died, who never married, a single man worked with us for a number of years, he and I were left in charge of the church, often when my father's away weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And I said in one of these meetings, look, I said, I'm not asking for anything. I am quite happy 
to leave and go and serve the Lord somewhere else. But this church needs a leader. My father either must come home and lead it, or somebody else must lead it. <laughs> and I got the short straw. And then you, <laughs> and then you pastored uh, the Christian Centre, Talbot Street, Nottingham, for how many years? Well, from then, whenever that was, 76, 7, 78, around there, till 2013, 37 years. I had the privilege of our church that we were part of, St Nicholas in Nottingham, Christian Centre and others, we would frequently work together. We did. And we were reminiscing actually before the programme about um, when you hired the ice rink for yeah. a Christmas event. And we yeah. did many things like that we of did. preaching the gospel. We did. You certainly did um, equip the church, David, and see God's kingdom extended. And one of the things I've noticed um, over those years, you have trained up and mentored and coached so many people who are now leading churches all over the, the country. And has that always been part of your heart when you, in your early days in ministry? As a, as a leader growing something significant, the size of any building is predicted by its foundations. And the foundations of a Christian community are based on word and spirit and Christ as the chief cornerstone. And then quality disciples of Jesus who stand with you in the foundations. And the, the, the more I grew, stronger people. So I spent more of my time with the best of the people trying to put whatever God had put in me into them. And, and the outcome is some of these leaders who lead churches around the country and in the world. So. But it's hugely encouraging. And of course, Jesus did it, David, didn't he? Uh, well, that's when... not a bad model to follow. <laughs> that's not a bad <laughs> model. That, you know, he did invest uh, in a group of people. He did. He did. Uh, and entrusted the church to them. And uh, you, you've been very good at, I think we often say raising leaders, but you've been very good at releasing leaders and not just raising them, raising them, but then releasing them to go and fulfill God's call upon their lives. And I think sometimes we want to raise them, but we want to keep them. Well, that's not kingdom, is it? No. So, so in any ministry, you want to try and work with people who are as good or better than yourself. Now, if you're gonna do that, you've got to be reasonably secure in who you are in God yourself which I think is a problem for many church leaders. So they're afraid to have people who've got outstanding gifts in a different area than themselves work with them. And I always try to work with top quality people. And then I'm not sure whether I was raising them. I was simply trying to provoke, I was on, as you're on provocateur really, to provoke the development of the kingdom of God in them, of, of the life of God in them, the, the Joseph experience, you know, losing his cloak and leaving the, Kate behind, one to find who he was, not the son of his father, and the other to keep his integrity. These sorts of basic character principles, we live in a world full of charisma and all, all the nonsense that's around in the modern world. What matters is character. Will you do the right thing? Do what's right. And, and, it, and if you build that into people, they grow and mature and God can trust them to look after his people. And that for me was where the depth of it was in seeking to build big people. 
and put the character issues uh, at the forefront. Absolutely. Isaiah 49 has been a powerful scripture to me. He said he made me into a polished arrow, you know, and I thought, what does that look like? An arrow has got the, the main wooden stem with the piece on the front and flights on the back, you know, the arrow head. This does the work. You as an evangelist, you're going into churches at the moment. The evangelist preaches the gospel and people come to Christ because yes. the arrowhead is sharp. It's been raised up by God. It's been worked on. And the flights, I used to say that was, I'm a good Pentecostal, aren't I? Uh, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. But I actually believe it's sensitivity, sensitivity to yes. people, to need, to be alert, as well as a sensitivity to the Spirit. The bit that we forget is the arrow. Yes. What they did in the ancient world was, was take a piece of wood that was as straight as they thought they could find. They would either soak it in water or in a dry area, like Aboriginal areas, it would be heated. And then they would fix it to the ground and leave it there. Day, night, hot, cold, good, bad. And I watched that happen in my own life. I've watched it happen in other people's lives. So that that arrow, when it is taken out of, of those pegs, it is straight. What we do in the modern world is we find people with all these gifts, hugely powerful, whoa, but their character's not straight. Well, when Christ puts that arrow in, it's bent and it misses the target. And we have too many illustrations of that, don't we? Yeah. So how do we, how do we help grow the excitement of the disciplined life that you might be pegged down in, in some Absolutely. area of your life? And it happens to us, it's happened to you in your maturity, it's yeah. happened to me in my maturity. In ministry, an area gets locked down, whatever it is, opportunities to speak, finances, relationships are a bit tight. It's all manner of things happen that just help keep forming the character because our life is a is a an arrow factory. We've not just got one arrow, there's a lot of arrows. He hides them in his quiver till he's ready. Yes, absolutely. And anyway, that, that analogy, was a little sermon. There that we go. analogy, <laughs> David, is so good as well. And also the bow and the arrow. You have to pull the arrow back for it to go further forward. True. And sometimes um, <clears throat> God wants us to be pulled back mm -hmm. and we don't like being pulled back. True. You know, but sometimes we do need to be pulled back, only that we can be sharpened to go further forward. You've written a number of books, David. Uh, there's this book. I remember I read this book, The Unstoppable Church. I read this in manuscript form because you sent it to me as a I, manuscript. I did. Uh, because uh, I wrote the foreword for this. Um, t t tell us about your idea of church. <laughs> How long have we got? <laughs> I remember. You were sitting on the front row of a charismatic leaders meeting after that was published, because I, you were writing before me, and, and I wanted your wisdom and how I'd put it together. And you were sat next to an Anglican bishop on the front row, and they'd invited me to speak from Ephesians about a view, an Ephesians view of the church. And the bishop turned to you and said, this is interesting, isn't it, John? He said, here's a Pentecostal pastor teaching me what a cathedral is, is symbols are. Absolutely. I think that, well, that's why I loved it so much and wrote the forward for you. But tell us about the cathedral model. Well, so the whole idea, it was a place of prayer and, and worship. You had a cloister house, which was the training, what we've been talking about, the training and the preparation of the next generation of leaders. The senior leaders that ran it, ran, ran the cathedral, 
developed the people in the cloister, cloisters, the training, and the chapter house was where all the key leaders met. All of these things still exist, don't they? Yes. Place of the altar and the place of prayer and sacrifice. The bishop's chair, they're called cathedrals. I didn't know that when I was growing up as a Pentecostal. The cathedral is because it's got a cathedra, and the cathedra is the bishop's chair, the place of authority. And we misunderstand, I think, a lot in, in our churchmanship of whatever sort of what true godly authority is. It's, it's authority under rather than authority over in the model of, of Jesus. You say to one, go, and he goes, but you know, I, I come with a different a different message. So I, I think all those pictures of uh, what the, the cathedral stands for and its symbolism are, are part of the, the life of a Christian community. And then where were these cathedrals in the Middle Ages particularly? They were in the heart of a community and there would be an almshouse and an education program and a hospital. So the social dynamic was affected massively in the community by the spiritual work that went on there that spilled over into social action, education, healthcare, uh, and the care of the whole community. And then they sent people out everywhere to evangelize. I mean, it's an amazing model, isn't it? And it's actually a very simple model. Very simple model. And it we, we doesn't need to be any more complicated now. I think whether we have city churches or community churches or what are developing, around the world, houses of prayer, places like India where there are thousands and thousands of houses of prayer and, and many other countries, small, small groups of people in a home, but uh, uh, maintaining the discipline of a Christian community. They're worshiping, they're reading and studying the scriptures, they're breaking bread, they're reaching out. I've always known you, uh, David, uh, as a man and as a leader who uh, loves Jesus and loves his church. Mm. But you often hear David today, oh, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. I don't want to do church. What would you say to those people? Yeah, I, there's a part of me understands because I think in, in some respects, and whether that's me becoming older or not, I don't know, but there's some parts of organized church life it's become a bit too presentational for me. You know, we're, we're, we're going to the theater. We're not going to the theater. We're meeting one another, meeting God. And how do we, how do we recapture that? Because in the thousands of meetings that I've been in, there would be many, many of them where you go, I wouldn't have missed this for the world. I, I met the people of God in the presence of God and we were changed. And I think we need to get a simpler expression of how our worship is gathered. Uh, not, not quite so prescribed, you know. We've got to reach this point by 18, you know, 11, 14, and we must be here by 11, 37, and then you can allow to get up to preach for 27 minutes. Now, do we need to organize ourselves? Yes, but it just needs to be a simple expression of a family meeting together, meeting God. Yes, yes. And we need, but we need to encourage people to, to love his to belong and, and to love his bride. He said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Yeah. And even though the bride might be blemished, we're part of the bride preparing her True. for the return of the bridegroom. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. we're blemished, aren't we? We are. I am broken, damaged goods in recovery. And I've said that to the congregation for many years. Yes. Well, one of your other books, which um, is one of my favorites, Presence Carriers. 
presence carriers. What, what do you mean by that? What do I mean? I mean that without the presence of God in you, you're not fully human. Because you were created by God for him to live in you. So if he's not living in you actively, you're not the fully human he created you to be. Without the presence of God in you, you can't become the person you were meant to develop into. And you'll be incomplete without the presence of God in you. Because God has put eternity in the heart of every man. And somewhere deep inside us is this longing to know the presence of God in our lives. The, the meaningful, I'm aware that God is with me. God is always going to be with us. He's promised he's never going to leave us. But it's, that, it's the difference between just having a mental consciousness that God is everywhere and he's therefore with me and that he lives in me and I'm aware of him, the manifest presence of God. So I start my day every day by making a wordless confession on my knees that God is in me all the time. So when you say a confession, what do you mean? Well, what do you I, I'm praying inwardly. Inwardly? Not, not words. But you're acknowledging his presence. I, I'm acknowledging his presence in me all the time, all through the day, right now, with me, for me, but in me. And then the first words, well, I, I do a few other things. I think, and you've known me for 40 odd years. Yes. And I was a pretty rabid Pentecostal in those days. You know, nights of prayer, maps on the floor, treading all over them, commanding the power of God and cursing the works of darkness and all of that. Well, you grow a bit older and I, I still believe in some of that. But I also start my day in silence and stillness. Because if you're still, the Bible says be still and know. It says be still to the children of Israel and you will see. And know that I am God. God. See and know. And to be silent, both naturally and spiritually. If I go and stand in my garden, or sit in my garden, out slightly out of the city now, and I'm still and silent, I'll see more than I ever do if I'm moving about. And in that place, no striving, no stressing, no straining, no struggling. I'm not trying to make anything happen. I'm not trying to become something in my own strength. Surrendered and submitted to Christ, in that place, I find a place of security, safety and serenity where I can serve the Lord. And my first confessed words are Romans 10 and you're light, lad. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord every day of my life. And then you as a good Greek, yes, part of the Eastern prayer is what I pray. Yeah. I add a little bit on the end, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy, mercy on me, me, a sinner. Now, people like us from a strong, evangelic, charismatic background, we're, we've struggled to get to this stuff. But we need it. We need it. We, we need to find this place where we humble before God every, every moment of our days. And I add on the end that the Bible says he's saved. Yes. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That the Bible says he's saved. And that's the presence of God for me in the, in the practical sense of day by day. Then I'll turn to the Bible and, and, and try and feed my soul and then try and live in, in the consciousness of that in 
meeting Christ in all the people that I meet. What would you say, David, to people who feel that God isn't with them? Well, that's not true. They've believed a lie. Because he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's got nothing to do with how you feel. It's to do with believing the truth. And if you continue to believe the truth, the feelings will come. And if you practice the presence of God consciously, spokenly or unspokenly, acknowledge the presence of God continually through your day. For me as a charismatic, I'm going to speak in tongues. Part of my kneeling down after those few bits of words, I'm going to speak in tongues. The Archbishop has confessed he does that every day. He doesn't yes. quite know why he does it, but he knows does it does it. him good. And, and I've challenged people in every continent of this world, if you speak in tongues for a few minutes, I've never met anybody in any continent that's felt worse after speaking in tongues for five or ten minutes. Anywhere, anywhere. Because you build yourself up. You, you build the sense of the presence of God up within you in that. <coughs> Excuse me. And it brings, it brings what I feel in this atmosphere here now. It brings a stillness, a serenity, a God is in control. Why do we have to be anxious about anything? David, for, for our viewers now who are struggling to get hold of this and want to sense the presence of the Lord, would you say anything else and would you pray for them? What would I say to a friend? I'd ask you to find a place of stillness, of quietness. Get rid of all background. You might not be able to do it immediately, but within the next few hours, find a place where you can be still and quiet and welcome Christ to come to you. He said, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Don't rely on any feelings to begin with. Just welcome his presence. Offer yourself to Christ afresh. Your body is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let him come and flood your life with his love and his power and his presence. And if you keep doing it, you'll become more and more aware of him, Lord Jesus. We agree together now. Yes. You said if two of us agree about anything, it will happen. And wherever these friends are, anywhere in this world, you are present with them. Make yourself known to them as you did to those two on the Emmaus Road, that their hearts would burn within them and their lives would be changed forever. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, David. I've always, in our interactions, David, I've always sensed that you were very able to discern God's will and keep in step with his spirit. How do we discern God's will and keep in step with the spirit instead of running ahead or falling behind? Well, I think all, all the aforesaid will help. A, a conscious lifestyle of uh, of a discipline of maintaining your dependence on God and your own awareness of His presence in your life and being available for Him. You know, whether you're in the in the shop buying something, you're going to say something encouraging to somebody. You you never know when encouragement turns to prophecy. If you never encourage, you never prophesy. So all those things would be would be helpful. And then I come back to something that. 
God said to me, as a teenage boy, and I've lived by that all my life, he said, if you acknowledge me in all your ways, I will direct your paths. And if you seek, Old Testament, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else will be added to you. So it's that humbly just waiting. Not inactive, you've got to be prepared to make decisions. You can't steer anything that's not moving. So a lot of people, oh God, oh God, I don't know where to go. Well, make a decision. Make a decision. And as you make a decision, before you actually outwork it, you make the decision. If it's not right, God will tell you. I remember years ago, I was only thinking of this the other day. Somebody in our town from a different religious tradition invited me to supper. And they had a great idea for something that the city needed, which eventually did come. It was a great idea, social action project, excellent. And I went home from being with that person for a couple of hours. I thought, that's a great idea. He wanted me to get the church involved in it. And the Lord said, inside me, I became all disturbed inside. You'd have nothing to do with it. I said, Lord, but what? No, don't have anything to do with it. It turned out a little while later that that man wasn't as true as he thought he was. Yes. And, and I was saved from getting involved in something that wasn't right. So it's like all. you had a check in your spirit. It's an umpire inside. It's like a literal umpire. The Bible said it, 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 its presence within you is an umpire that's directing you. And if as you make your decisions, you keep listening that the umpire is still happy, you keep moving forward. And as soon as you lose the peace of God, which is the umpire, you stop. It's not hard, is it? Absolutely. The great missionary, I was reminded, uh, William Carey, one of his great statements was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And I think sometimes we can expect great things from God, but we don't always attempt them. But you have, David, I've seen you do that over many, many years. And I find that truly inspiring. So really, if God has told you to do something, do it. That's it. I mean, that's, that's it. There's no negotiation. Well, he's Lord. If you've said this morning, he's Lord, your servant. If I say to my wife, Dorothy, this is my wife, everybody knows I'm her husband. Exactly? Absolutely. That's the relationship. So if I say to Jesus, you're Lord, that means I'm servant. I'm the one under the Lord. He's in control. If he says do it, he, he is going to enable us to do whatever he calls us to do. And there are some younger and older people out there in this audience who the Spirit of God, just as we talk about it, they go, oh, I've got some big ideas. Well, start with all the little things. Do, do the little things God's telling you to do. Do the quiet, private things. When I was 14, we used to collect newspaper because... Uh, in those days, people, charities collected newspaper to get a little bit of money, you know, to help with yes. social programs. And I'd often be there with piles and piles of newspapers, all, all, all bundling them up, getting it ready. Nobody ever saw me there. Do the little things in obedience to Jesus. And when he asks you to do some other, maybe more public things, you'll be ready to go. Absolutely. David, always, always inspiring being with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon been a privilege. Thank you very much, John. I hope that's given you a faith lift. It certainly has given me one. 
Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. One doctor developed the world's first vaccine. One civil rights activist helped to end racial segregation in the USA. One botanist developed new farming practices supporting impoverished farmers. One former slave escorted 300 others to freedom. One watchmaker saved the lives of 800 Jews and refugees during World War II. One politician persisted to see slavery legally abolished in the UK. Faith, love, generosity, sacrifice, perseverance. Heroes of the Faith, the new coffee table book by J. John. Available now at canonjjohn.com.